If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Galatians. I have good news. We're almost doubling our verse output from two weeks ago. So we're covering a verse and a quarter today. Uh, So we're flying. I hope you're buckled. If you have your Bibles, open them to Galatians. We're going to read all of the verses between 6 and 10 of the first chapter. We will be paying special attention, however, to verses 6 and 7 today. So far, as we've been working through Galatians, we've talked about how there are three basic principal actors in the book of Galatians. There's Paul, whom we met the first week. Paul, who was converted on the road to Damascus as he saw visibly the Lord Jesus Christ shining, as he said, as the midday sun. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church of the living God, to persecute Jesus Christ himself. But that revelation of Christ completely changed Paul. And no longer was he a persecutor of the church, but he was an apostle of the Lord, not taking to prison those who would believe in Jesus Christ, but going out and being thrown in prison himself for having others believe in Christ. We also then met the Galatians who would have heard from Paul on his first missionary journey, likely in Acts 13 and 14. They who seemed so secure in the faith when Paul preached to them, who seemed so grounded in the faith when Paul left them, so quickly had turned and were being pulled away by these agitators, who are the third group that we will meet and meet shortly. If you have your Bibles open, then read with me in the book of Galatians, beginning in verse 6 of the first chapter. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's holy and faithful word. We are therefore going to talk about today that third group and the agitators. They are people who have come into Galatia and take the good gospel that Paul had preached to them and distort it. They've perverted it. They've twisted it into something else. It's important then to know how they did this, but to know how they've perverted it, to know how they've distorted it, it is vital that we know what the actual good gospel is in the first place. What is this gospel that Paul would have gone around the world preaching? What is this gospel that Paul would have shown up in the land of Galatia and preached to these churches? As an elder this past couple of weeks, we were reminded of how clear we need to be week in and week out to place the gospel before our people. Not hinting at the gospel, not sort of making a nod toward the gospel, not dancing around the gospel, but clearly portraying the gospel to our people. It is important not only for the elders to do this when we preach, but it is also important for you. 1 Peter 3.15 instructs Christians to honor Christ the Lord always 
as holy, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. They need to know why it is that you believe in this gospel, but to know that, to be able to give a defense of the hope that is in you, you've got to know what that hope is in. That hope is nothing less than the gospel. So before we get into what the perversion was, what was the distortion that these agitators brought, let us take a minute to talk through what the gospel is, what the core of the gospel is. We're going to try to get away with making this distinction without having any sort of cultural things attached to it, but no doubt those things come along. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to just get at the core of the gospel and not have cultural things attached to it. But we are going to do the best we can today. So what is the gospel? The gospel needs to cover at least three different things. First, it is clear from Paul's letters, it is clear from the New Testament as a whole, that whatever this gospel is, this gospel concerns Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, throughout this letter and throughout the, entire of the entirety of the New Testament, the gospel is linked to nothing else but Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 8, Paul makes it very clear, even if we preach if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In verse 16, he clarifies what he preached to you. In verse 16, he talks about God being pleased to reveal his son to Paul in order that I might preach him. The preaching of the gospel is nothing less than the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is the preaching of the man from Nazareth. But even the fact that we call him Jesus Christ and the fact that it is the gospel of the Christ means, secondly, that it is also a gospel about a kingdom. Certainly in the secular world, they would have heard good news this way. Oftentimes, many times, and in important times, good news that was preached was that chaos was coming to an end, that rulers who had fought and, and uh, created chaos in the empire, all those uprisings were put to the rest. There is now good news even if we don't understand good news in that very limited fashion, it's clear that this is the gospel of Christ. Even at the end of verse 7, he says, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. And we read that like Christ is Jesus' last name. Now, it was closely associated with Jesus. When, when Paul talks about Christ, he has no one else in mind but Jesus. But the word Christ is nothing less than the word Messiah, when all that means is one who is anointed. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, the anointed one was nothing less than the long-awaited king. It is a kingly term. Some New Testament scholars go so far as to say Christ is replicatable. We could just take it out and plop in the idea of kingship every time we read that because that is exactly the idea that it would take for most first-century Jews. We read in Psalm 2, for instance, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. His anointed is nothing less than the Messiah. And if you read it in Greek, it is the word Christos. It is the word Christ. Messiah, King, Christ, they're all the same thing. It is the gospel of a kingdom. But how do we get from Jesus to a king? He was an itinerant preacher in Galilee with a small, although devoted, following. How do we get from him, a former carpenter, itinerant preacher, 
to this idea of a world-replacing kingdom, and that is third, through the death and the resurrection of Christ. Central to every proclamation of Jesus Christ in Scripture everywhere centers on his death. You don't need to go to Paul to see this. You can run to the Gospels and see this. The Gospels that so quickly lead you through the life of Christ, almost ignoring, in certain cases, absolutely ignoring his birth and his young ages, but going almost directly into his ministry when he turns into an adult around 30 years old, they focus so much of their space and time on his death and resurrection. So, the gospel is about Jesus, it is about kingdom, and it is about his death and resurrection. And in light of that, we would say this. The true gospel is the proclamation that Jesus' death alone frees from their sins those who trust in him, and his resurrection has established a perfect kingdom that awaits fulfillment. Let's read that again. The true gospel is the proclamation that Jesus' death alone frees from their sins those who trust in him, and his resurrection has established a perfect kingdom that awaits fulfillment. While that is a good statement of what the gospel is, let's fill that in to be as clear as we possibly can. First and foremost, the gospel is proclamation. It is good news. It was taken to people by heralds. It is not good news because you know it. It is good news because you proclaim it to others. People have to believe, as Paul says. How can God call those who have not believed? How can they believe without hearing? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? It needs to be proclaimed. This is what makes it good news and not just a good idea or a good concept. It is proclamation. As Isaiah 52, 7 says, and Paul then uses directly after Romans 10, 14 that I just referred to, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, not just those who know it, but who proclaim it to the nations. The gospel is a proclamation. Secondly, it is Jesus' death alone for Paul Everything in the gospel flows through the cross. If you lose the cross, you lose everything. And it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that every good thing attains from that point on out. It is not, it is not that you can work for the kingdom of God or for forgiveness of sins. It has nothing to do with your fame. It has nothing to do with your personality. It has nothing to do with your culture. It has nothing to do with how much penance you can have or how much repentance you can give. It has nothing to do with your intelligence or the amount of wisdom that you have collected over the years. It has nothing to do with the amount of effort you put into it. It is only by the death of Christ that sins are forgiven, that a kingdom is established, and only in that is good news. People are then freed from their sins. We mean this in two ways. One, from penalty, and two, in deliverance or from dominion. You are freed from the penalty of your sin. That every sin, every instance of you not loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, this is the first and the greatest of all the commandments. And as we talked about earlier in the spring in Deuteronomy, every single sin hinges on that. Every sin that happens, happens because you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You love something else more than him. Whether that is, even as Pastor Richard had, had prayed about earlier, 
whether that's a good thing like family, like children, those things can become idols incredibly quickly, if not all the more because they're good things. You cannot love anything more than you love the Lord your God, and if you do, you commit sin, and God's wrath is upon you. But Christ steps in between you and the wrath of the Father, and he takes the wrath of God for you so that God's justice is met, his wrath is quenched, and you are no longer under penalty from him. But it does more than simply free you from the penalty of sin. It also frees you from the dominion of sin. That you are now free by the work of the Holy Spirit in you to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. That a heart that previously was bent on loving other things more than God is now bent on loving God as the highest and greatest thing in the universe. Jesus' death alone frees from their sins those who trust in him. Those who realize that their only hope is in him. Those who realize that they cannot stand before a holy and a righteous God without him. Who will plead nothing before God but the blood of Jesus Christ. They will not plead that they are good people. That they intended well. That they kept the law as closely as they possibly could. That they were born to the right lineage. Or they had the right ideas and concepts in their minds. That they were theologically sound. None of that will save you. Only thing that will ever save you is your trust that Christ has provided a way for you. First, about Jesus' death. And secondly, about his resurrection not a mythical, a metaphysical, or a metaphorical resurrection, not a resurrection in concept alone, but a resurrection in reality. That man got up out of the grave. He physically presented himself to Thomas. He physically presented himself to Paul. He physically presented himself to 500 other brothers at one time. He was a physical and is a physical man in reality who will return to this earth. That resurrection establishes a perfect kingdom. That perfect kingdom is not just a perfect kingdom because there is now a perfect king, but it is a perfect kingdom because he will have perfect people as well. He will not leave you in your sin. Not only has he delivered you from the dominion of sin, but he will one day take away all sin. His kingdom is a kingdom where there will be no pain, hatred. There will be no folly, no suffering, no anger. No enemies, no death, no tears, no hardship, nothing that even remotely resembles sin. He will be a perfect king over a perfect people in a perfect land. But we also realize that that kingdom, which has been inaugurated and is real and is true, still awaits fulfillment. We are awaiting the final coming of the kingdom of Christ. That doesn't mean that it's not here really and truly present. It just means that it's not fully present. You already have an idea of what it means to be cleansed from your sins. You grow in sanctification as a Christian. You move away from sins in repentance and walk closer with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is moving toward fulfillment. But we realize that the kingdom of God is not finally here yet. So we wait for it. The true gospel is the proclamation that Jesus' death alone frees from their sins those who trust in him. And his resurrection has established a perfect kingdom that awaits 
fulfillment. Perhaps not in those words, but something very close to that would have been the same thing that Paul preached to the Galatians. He would have proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah, that he died for the sins of his people, including the sins of the Galatians, if they would turn from their pagan ways and trust and believe in Christ. So then, what is this perversion that we read of? What is this distortion of the gospel? The way I had always read this problem, the way it was most often presented to me, was that these were Jews, and most often they were called Judaizers. They were called Judaizers because what they were doing was trying to not change the Galatians into better Christians, but they were actually trying to change the Galatians into Jews. And so they would come to Galatia as the way that I think most people read this is the way it's been set up throughout since the Reformation. So we should understand that these Jews would come in and they would say to the Galatians, it's great, you believe in Christ, that's, that's good, good news indeed, very good news. He is our Messiah, but you also need to keep the law. And the first step in keeping the law is to be circumcised, especially for grown men. You need to be circumcised. But they would come and they would preach the full-on law. They would teach everybody that you must maintain all of the law. And certainly, you can go back to Acts 15, and there were a certain segment of the Jewish populations, namely Pharisees, who would tell people that. You need to keep the whole law. And so the way that we read verses 6 and 7 here is that, Paul is saying, they're turning you to a different gospel. And then he immediately clarifies. And the clarification that comes in verse 7 is really almost an apology. He's saying something along the lines of, I'm sorry that I called it a gospel. I really shouldn't have even applied that word to this thing. Whatever it is that they're doing, it's not a gospel. There is only one gospel, and the thing that they are doing is not it. I don't think that that is actually the case here in Galatia. I don't think that they were coming preaching the law. Therefore, I don't think that they were Judaizers. I think it's better to think of these people as agitators. And I think that they were proclaiming one thing and one thing only. You also need to be circumcised. It's not a radical change, but it is an important change. One of the reasons why I think that they weren't preaching the whole law is because of certain things that Paul says later in the book of Galatians. When we come to the incident of Peter, it is clear that Paul thinks that the incident of Peter is representative of what is happening in Galatia as well. Peter goes to Antioch, and at some point in time, because he fears a circumcision group that comes from Jerusalem, he pulls away from table fellowship with Gentile Christians. Paul sees this as a denial of the gospel. He thinks that Peter is standing condemned because of it and not walking in the truth of the gospel. And he talks this way to Peter in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know. He says, we share knowledge, Peter. We share beliefs, Peter. One of those beliefs comes at the end of verse 16 where he says, by works of the law, no one will be made right before God. No one will be justified. Peter himself understands that it is not the works of the law that justify. Peter is not trying to establish the law in Antioch. It goes to argue then 
that neither are the agitators trying to establish the law in Galatia. Furthermore, if you look back at chapter 5, listen to how Paul talks in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Look, this is, by the way, the conclusion of his major argument. This is the end of it. This is how he sums up everything that he has argued up to this point in the letter. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The issue is circumcision. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 3 is to come as a surprise to the Galatians. I don't think that they were planning on keeping the whole law. This is not a full-throated, obvious, obvious heresy. It's not a full-throated declaration that you need the law, but it's subtle. And for that reason, it is all the more dangerous. What I think is going on in verses 6 and 7, the way I think that we should read those, you have in your notes The understanding that we have to have turns on two different words. In verse 6, the word different, and in verse 7, the word another. What is different and what is another? I don't think that Paul means that there is a different gospel, a gospel of another kind, a gospel that shouldn't even be called gospel, but I think what he means is a different form of the gospel, a different contextualization of the gospel, that there were two different forms of the gospel that went out in the world. There was a form for the Jews, And there was a form for the Gentiles. My sister-in-law is married to one of the pickiest eaters that God has ever created. He, you know, all the more power to you. If you're a grown man and you want to be picky about your food, you you can be picky about your food. He won't eat certain foods. And I don't mean that he's tried them before and he's decided that he doesn't like it, like peaches, and he doesn't need to eat them anymore. He refuses to eat certain things. One of those things is meatloaf. Refuses to touch the stuff. It's disgusting. Won't have anything to do with it. Well, this is a bit of a problem for my sister-in-law. She likes to cook meals, but she obviously doesn't want to cook two different dinners for everybody. And so meatloaf's an easy thing. Kids all like it. So she's got to come up with a way to handle this. And she comes up with a very brilliant way, a noble woman who can find. She makes the loaf into balls. Meatballs are fantastic. <laughs> Meatloaf is no good. Okay? Two different forms, one exact same substance. Two different presentations, one exact same core. Same ingredients, same everything. That is what's going on in Galatia. If you were a Jew and you lived in Damascus, the same city that Paul was going to throw Christians in jail. If you lived there and somebody came back after Pentecost and they said, listen, Jerusalem's in an uproar. There's this guy named Jesus. They say that he's been resurrected from the dead. They say he's the Christ and and I believe him. And we saw the spirit powerfully manifested in Peter, this guy named Peter and the other apostles. It, It was magnificent. And they tell you the gospel and you buy into it. You've got a young son. He's five days old. In three days, he's due to be circumcised. Do you know what you do as a Jew who now believes in Christ? You circumcise him. You know what you don't do? You don't even think twice about it. 
because it's simply part of your culture. It's part of what you do. It's, it's part of a generational thing. If we were to travel back in time and ask that gentleman or ask that woman, why are you allowing your son to be circumcised? Don't you know that if you accept circumcision, you are obligated to keep the whole law? And they would answer you very clearly, listen, I don't doubt that Jesus is my whole justification before God. I, I cannot be justified by any other means before God. But this is something that we have done throughout our days. This is what links us to Abraham. This is a cultural right that is passed down. As Christianity spread amongst Jews, there's no doubt that there were certain cultural things attached, attached to the law that they were allowed to continue to do. At the top of that list would have been circumcision. This helps us to understand why it is that Paul talks so severely about circumcision towards the Gentiles, but he talks very much like it doesn't matter at all in other passages. So we've already read 5, 2, and 3. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. Later, in 5, 6, four verses later, he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Galatians 6, 15, he says this, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In one case, he cares an awful lot about people being circumcised, and in another case, he doesn't care at all. In Acts chapter 16, he takes Timothy and has him circumcised. Why? Is Paul just a huge hypocrite? No, Paul is incredibly consistent. Timothy has a Jewish mom, therefore he is Jewish. Being circumcised does nothing to change his identity. He is still Jewish. It's part of his culture. Even though his father might not have let him be circumcised, there's nothing wrong with him being circumcised as an adult. There is a problem for the Gentiles, however, because circumcision was never anything that was passed down through the culture of the Gentiles. It cannot be seen as something that's just cultural but it is inherently a religious act. It is inherently something that when they do, says, I need to do this to fulfill my obligation to God. It is immediately something that impacts justification by faith alone in ways that it would not for a Jew. A Jew, because of cultural inheritance, can circumcise their child as long as it doesn't ever impact what they think of as justification by faith alone. It cannot be done for Gentiles. So Paul says that they are turning to a different form of the gospel, this Jewish form of the gospel. You get the sense not only that this is the case because of what we've argued so far, but Paul, throughout the second chapter, argues as though there are two distinct forms of the gospel. In Galatians 2, verse 2, Paul says, I went up, that is, to Jerusalem because of a revelation and set before them the gospel. But notice what he says there. It's not just the gospel. He, he doesn't go up and just say, I set before them the gospel as though he was checking to make sure he had the gospel down. He says very clearly, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. It is the gospel to the Gentiles that he gives to them. Later on in that same chapter in verse 7, he says, on the contrary, 
when they saw that I, when, when Peter, James, and John saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, and the ESV and most other translations read, to the uncircumcised. The problem is that the, the form of the words there does not typically imply to somebody, but is almost always a form that is used where the word of is used. It should be probably a little bit more literally with the gospel of the uncircumcised, just as Peter was the gospel of the circumcised, two different forms of the gospel. The gospel that goes out to the Gentiles and the gospel that goes out to the Jews. The same gospel, two different forms. But these agitators unflinchingly and probably unknowingly show up in Galatia and say, listen, thousands of years we've been circumcising our people. You now believe in Jesus the Christ, that's great, but to be part of God's people who have always been the Jews, you also need to be circumcised. I don't think, and we can take the example of Peter as part of this, I don't think that they necessarily even saw this as being antithetical to justification by faith alone. They, they didn't realize what they were saying, or maybe they did. We just don't know. But it could have been something as simple as saying, circumcision has always been there. Just be circumcised. Jesus Christ saves you alone, but you, you also need to be circumcised. But it is that little change Taking what was allowed for the Jews and demanding it of the Gentiles switches it from something that is a cultural allowance to outlandish heresy. It is small and it is important that we hear it. The agitators, I don't think, were flatly denying Christ, but they were wrongly applying their own cultural context in a way that nullifies the cross of Christ. This ought to affirm for us all the more the importance that we know the gospel well. You must know the gospel well. You must. This is the type of thing that you can get sucked into so easily. It is the type of thing that can sweep you away, not because heresy is shouted from the rooftops. It's, it's easy to find heresy when it's stomping on your face. There's a reason why the problems that we read about in the early church were not problems of paganism. Because there's no doubt that paganism was wrong. No one thought you could worship Christ and worship the gods in the temple. This wasn't something that was ever really a problem in Christianity. There is a reason why things like Arianism that we just got done talking about in Sunday school and we will talk about in our community groups, there's a reason why that heresy stuck because that heresy sounds right. That heresy sounds good. It sounds biblical. You can say good things about Jesus Christ. You can talk about justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ and still hold to Arianism and still be condemned. Heresy often whispers, it rarely shouts. Athanasius talks about it being a poison. Go back to Ignatius, and in one of his letters, he talked about it being a poison that has slipped into good food so that people who take it are killing themselves by taking it, but they don't even know because it sounds nice. You have to know the gospel well so that you can 
figure out when you have heresy before you. For those who don't know the gospel, well, heresy is easily swallowed. Second, you must share the gospel well. You must share the gospel well. The gospel is a proclamation. We are to be people who proclaim it. But we have to make sure that we are proclaiming the gospel and we are not proclaiming other things to people that get in the way of the gospel. The gospel is like a huge freight liner in an ocean. And it churns up a lot of stuff behind it. And it has a huge wake that comes behind it. And that wake does a number of things to cultures. It will clean up their morality. It will insist upon the equality of all people. It will have a number of cultural things that come in tow with it, simply because of its great impact on culture. There's no doubt about that, but do not confuse the wake for the boat. It is very easy to take good things and confuse them for the good news. You can quite easily sit down with your neighbor who's committing adultery and talk to him about the evil of adultery. Warn him about the de- devastation that awaits his family, that awaits his wife, and that will ultimately await him if he continues down that road. You can talk to him and, and talk to him in the way that the scriptures talk to him. Go to Proverbs and say, cling to the wife of your youth. Talk about Genesis 2 and how man and woman came together and they were one flesh. You can even go to Ephesians 5. And you can proclaim to him that this itself is a picture of what Christ has done in the church. And you can lay all of that out for him. And you can get him to go back with his wife. You can get him to leave his mistress and to leave that sin. And you can get him to do all of the right things and still send him to hell because you have not told him the gospel. You've made him moral like you. Just like the Jews were going to make good Jews out of these Gentiles and leave them devastated by the law. Do not confuse good things for the good news. You must share the gospel well. Paul clearly here sees the sufficiency of Christ challenged by what is most obviously a good thing. This good thing, circumcision, was given by God himself, elevated to an importance that, frankly, it just could not bear. But it is precisely because it was a good thing. It's precisely because it was a small thing that makes it so dangerous. The greatest threat to Christianity and the greatest threat to you is not some sort of enemy government who's out to get you who will persecute you and take your life. The greatest threat is not some sort of sinking morality in America. We look around and we see the world going to pot. It was better when I was a kid. It is not some foreign religion that sets up a mosque near your church. It is not, finally, even Satan himself. It is, of all things, the loss of the gospel clouded by everything else that we hold dear, taken away by all of those cultural things that we attach to it, we distort it and we can pervert it and we can lose it. We must know the gospel well. 
to borrow the words of Moses. It shall be on your heart. You should teach it diligently to your children. You should talk of it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind it as a sign on your hand, and it should be as frontlets between your eyes. You, friend, you need to know it because there is no other message in heaven or under heaven by which men and women can be saved. Know the gospel well. Share the gospel well. For the true gospel is the proclamation that Jesus' death alone frees from their sins those who trust in him. And his resurrection has established a perfect kingdom that awaits fulfillment. This is the good news. Let us pray. Father, you are kind to us. You have given us Jesus Christ and you have given us a revelation of Christ that we are not left figuring out what his death and resurrection means, but you have revealed it to your apostle Paul. You have revealed it to all of the apostles, including Peter and James and John and Matthew. You have given us Holy Scripture written by your Holy Spirit who has given these things to those great men that we might know them and be trained by them so that we might not depart from you or from the truth of the gospel. We pray that you hold us fast, that you do not let us slip from this, and that if our church ever were to fall away from the true and abiding proclamation of the gospel, that we would, as Paul says, be accursed and shamed off of the earth for our defiance of the true and living God. Father, we cannot do this on our own. We have not the fortitude to keep ourselves from falling away. We do not have the intelligence to keep ourselves from falling away. And so we ask for your Spirit's help. And thank you, Father, for promising us just that. As we now stand to sing, we pray that you give strength to our voices and belief in our hearts of the truth of these words. You have given us amazing grace. May we proclaim that well and truly and loudly. In Jesus' name, amen.